live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back from Prague, Rabbi Hesh. How Thank was you. that? Very nice. Yes, we had a very nice group, international. And we just got back last night. And yourself and Rabbi Tats. Yes. Yep. Lovely. All right. Welcome back. We're now on to part two of Britain's Prime Ministers. And this is taking us further back through the centuries, as promised in the intro. Right. So first up today is David Lloyd George, Britain's Prime Minister during the First World War. And 20 years later, he gave uh, secret testimony to the 1937 Peel-Palestine Commission. And these records have since been opened for public reading. And he said in this commission that the Jews are a very subtle race and they have a means of communicating throughout the world, which nobody seems to know about. And Jewish financiers in America stopped the U.S. joining the war until 1917. Now, this is the guy who authorized the Balfour Declaration. He's the prime minister, and he believes in this secret power of international Jews. Uh, you know, you shudder to think what the rest were thinking. Uh, but it, I guess not all bad, because this very belief of you know, some type of Jewish domination conspiracies helped shape his decision to grant the Jews a homeland in 1917. How so? So he believed that public opinion in the USA and Russia was crucial. And he believed that the friendliness or hostility of the Jewish race in those countries would make a considerable difference. Now, the idea that in Russia, the opinion of the Jews counted, I mean, I don't know what planet he was on. True, it was a few months after the revolution, but that hadn't filtered through yet. Um, although, to be fair, he was also drawn to the idea of a homeland for the Jewish people, by his Christian upbringing, and he was positively disposed to it. He first came into contact with the Zionist idea as early as July 1903. Uh, he was a solicitor, and he helped lay some of the legal groundwork for the Uganda plan, which proposed a refuge for Jews in British East Africa. Um, and famously, David Lloyd George is credited with saying when they circumcised Herbert Samuel, they threw away the wrong bit. <laughs> Not sure that we disagree with that, given his time running the mandate in Palestine. Right. Anyway, we will come back to specific individuals soon. But in order to do so, I need to look at one of the most perplexing pieces of legislation affecting the Jews of England in the 1700s. So it's well known that the Jews returned to England in the 1660s under Cromwell, Charles II. And if we look at the census of 1695, there are 850 Jewish households, approx, uh, 600 Svaradim, 250 Ashkenazim. London is home to basically half of that entire community. 
And given that the entire population of London was 70,000, the Jewish population is about 1%. And within the area of um, St. James Duke's Parish, uh, which includes both the Sephardi and Ashkenazi shuls at the time, at least one in four residents was Jewish. So it's the unofficial London ghetto of the 17th and 18th century. As a rough guess, what would you say the London jury make of London today? What percentage? Well, there are probably about 150,000 Jews in London. And it depends if you include Greater London, the 8 million people. So, you know, do the maths. And in the early 1700s outside of London, communities start up, particularly seaports. The largest, the oldest, is Portsmouth. 1747 you've got bristol 1754 there's a shawl in plymouth which dates back to 1752 sunderland and others with smaller populations swansea brighton dover hull why the seaports is it trade in a way the the captain of every vessel bringing merchandise had to have somebody who was an agent in that seaport and probably 25% of them appointed Jews. Also, there was trade with Jamaica, which was part of the British Empire, and it was principally in Jewish hands. And on the island itself, there were probably 200 Jewish families who'd already obtained British citizenship. So in the first half of the 18th century, the Jewish community in England had basically as much right to be there as any of the other non-conformist religions like uh, the Catholics, for example. The Jews were very loyal. They were generally accepted and tolerated. There were some hitchers. One of the problems was uh, Protestant children of Jews, meaning um, Jews who'd converted to Christianity, which was comparatively rare, but it still did happen. In fact, one of the main reasons for the readmission of the Jews was to expose Jews to the true light of English Christianity. So, as an example, in May 1701, an 18-year-old girl asked to be baptized, and her name was Mary Mendez de Breta. And when it happens, it causes quite a stir because she is the daughter of Jacob Mendez de Breta, who was a very wealthy Jewish merchant. And de Breta was less than pleased with his daughter's apostasy. So if we now move to the Christian side of the story, so the parish officials of St. Andrew's Church were very pleased that uh, Mary had seen the light. But what they weren't happy about was having to shoulder the financial burden of Christendom by themselves. So on the 16th of June, they ordered her father to pay £200. That's painful. And he argued at the Guildhall that Mary isn't his daughter. He said this girl with two or three more children... Um, were placed outside his door he took them in out of charity and he maintained them so the parish officials petitioned the house of commons and they said that not just in this case but the jews enjoy the protection of the government and they grow rich um, but they bear a hatred to uh, our natural religion 
And if any of their children embrace this religion, they utterly disown them and, uh, you know, treat them with cruelty. I guess this was before the days of hospital records. Well, be proven so simply. Or DNA. I'm not sure if yeah. records themselves would, would have necessarily done the job. And when this was put to the House of Commons, it passed. So, well, so in other words, making it very clear that Britain was a Christian country. Yes. In other words, more than that, uh, not just a Christian country, but uh, a country that actually would like all of its Jews to become Christians. And they will promote that, uh, obviously, incomparable to any Inquisition or such like. But that was the, the feeling. And there was almost as a consequence, you could say, harassment of Jews in the streets from time to time. In 1769, a man, a non-Jew, was convicted for forcibly sitting a Jewish peddler before a large fire with his hands tied behind him and stuffing hot bacon down his throat. But even respectable Jews could become victims of hooliganism. The first day of Pesach, 1824, Leah Meldola, who was the daughter of the chief rabbi of the Svardi chief rabbi in England, was attacked while she was walking with a friend. And Jones grabbed her, dragged her in a nearby, into a nearby house and forced her, to try and force her at least, to eat pork and bread. And she was rescued. So, you know, I mean, uh, these are irritations rather than wholesome problems. I mean, like you said before, he was convicted, the fellow who tried yeah, yeah. forcing. True. OK, so in fact, uh, at this point, it's probably worth looking at Judaism and Jewish practice in England, because the period that we are talking about, the 1700s, was when Jewish Germany in particular and Jewish Europe in general was going through change, turmoil. Um, modern Jewish history describes the revolution initiated by Moses Mendelssohn and his disciples, bringing about a wholesale change to Judaism and derision for orthodoxy. Uh, they imitated non-Jewish fashions, even in the synagogues. They selected non-Jewish courts and laws rather than the Jewish ones. And there was actual apostasy. But while this was all happening on the European mainland, England was different, just like Brexit. Being English, although Jewish, they didn't Ha sort of mountain attack on rabbinic Judaism. It was more that they slipped away gently from practice so that if they gave up any of the traditions of Judaism, they didn't feel a need to replace them with anything reformed. So they didn't create reformed Judaism or convert to Christianity. They were just uh, lapsed Jews. There was no Haskalah in the way that it was in Germany, but the assimilation of Anglo-Jewry advanced at a pace unmatched by any other Jewish community in the West at that time. So what you're describing is that Anglo-Jewry were practicing new types of behavior rather than new types of thought. Yes. Um, so, for instance, in, in Prussia, uh, Jews felt they had to demonstrate publicly that German Jews could be productive citizens of the modern state. In France, as a result of the revolution, almost overnight, the identity of French Jewry disappeared, and the Jews of France now become free to participate in the army, in universities. It's different here. And this lack of interest in Judaism in England 
is captured by a statement of Chief Rabbi Hartlion, who sort of asked, why don't you at least read secular books instead of playing cards? And it's not surprising that he didn't hang around for very long in London. In 1764, he left. He was then in Holberstadt, Mannheim, finally in Berlin. And he said about himself, in London, I had money, but no Jews. In Mannheim, I had Jews, but no money. And in Berlin, I had no money and no Jews. <laughs> now, almost a prophecy for the years later. <laughs> now, alongside Jewish practice, there were what you might call typically Jewish elements. So, for instance, Yiddish suffers the same fate as the abandonment of mitzvahs because Yiddish is so closely associated with religious Ashkenazi Jewry and therefore its abandonment, like that of wearing a beard, is a must for newly emerging middle-class Jews. And in fact, it's got such negative associations that in 1826, the Kaboim of the Great Synagogue um, determined that all announcements made during the services or posted on the outside doors of the synagogue should now only be in English and Hebrew, even though most of their congregants only understood Yiddish. And eventually they realized the situation was so absurd, people literally could not understand what was going on in their own shawl, so they reversed their decision. And non-Jews picked up on this. There were writers hostile to the Jews who, seeing that the Jews had abandoned the outward sides of dress and speech, had to emphasize their distinctive physical appearance because you couldn't tell from the outside that they were Jewish. And for the Jews in England, there were basically no communal penalties or social or religious consequences if you dropped your observance and therefore you sort of picked and chose whatever appealed a person might close their business on shabbos and eat non-kosher food when visiting christian friends and kosher meat fell to such a degree in anglo jewry that the board of shechita at the beginning of the 1800s had six shochtim in the 1830s when the jewish population had probably doubled the numbers of shochtim was reduced to three and shul attendance obviously also drops radically over the course of the 18th century. And by the end, at least two of the three major London shuls experience difficulty in making a minion and they hire people. And those that were on the charity list of the synagogue were told that they would have a sixpence a month deducted from their allowance unless they attended services regularly. Paradoxically, I guess, and unlike mainland Europe, many wealthy Jews who'd strayed from what you might call traditional Judaism still had strong institutional ties to Jewish life. They continued to serve, and this is all the way through the 1700s, 1800s, as the lay leaders of orthodox institutions, synagogues, charities, schools. And there were also amongst the wealthiest elements of Anglo Jewry, few individuals or families who remained religious despite their affluence and their acquisition of now very English manners, even though they lived in English surroundings. There's a, a diamond merchant called Levi Salomons. He was religious, even though he lived in a 48-room mansion and had a country mansion in Sussex. Because in England, no one would question your choice. So, 
you know, today we take it for granted. You can be whoever you want to be. You define your Judaism. But back then, basically, you had a singular identity. You were Orthodox, you were Reform, you were this, you were that. Uh, but in England, it was much more open and fluid. Interesting. England of all places where we're famous for our traditional values and tradition and not being fluid. So we'll see in a moment one of the main causes for it, but to a degree it's being British where you don't want to make too much out of what you do and don't do and therefore you let it lie gently. You don't make a fuss about it. Whereas, let's say, reform in Germany was militant. It was a movement. But much more than that, they are the ones that concreted over the mikveh in Frankfurt. They forbade Jews to keep religion. It was an attack, not simply um, a way of life. Um, So that didn't exist in England. You have... As an example of this sort of mishmash, in 1783, uh, John Watson, he's a Jewish butcher, he astonishes an English judge by taking an oath on the New Testament. And then when he subsequently then takes the oath on the Hebrew Bible, he doesn't cover his head. And the judge finds his behavior incomprehensible. And we've got the actual exchange on record. So the, the judge says to him, what did you mean by taking the oath as you did? Do you not know that people of your profession take an oath they always put on a head covering? Did you mean to take the oath as a Jew or as a Christian? So he answers, I don't know, whatever you please to call me. To which the judge says, I'm pleased to call you a good-for-nothing fellow. Stand down. Uh, because the judge was, you know, shocked. This is not the way to behave. Mm. And we've seen many times that non-Jews don't respect a Jew that doesn't proudly respect, uh, their, respect own their own identity. Religion. Yep. And Jews went further than Christians in abandoning religion, uh, not out of motivation, because it was simply, you know, less convenient. Wow. Where were the rabbis at this time? Where were they up to in all this? Okay, so that's what I was going to come to. Let's, in fact, start this answer by looking at the study of Torah. This is essentially completely absent from the English scene. So you talk about tradition. Yes, but tradition, which is skin deep. There's no nothing backing it in that sense. Um, the community never supported yeshiva. In the late 1750s, Chief Rabbi Herschel Levine complained that he didn't have a chavrusa, he didn't have somebody to study with. And his successor, um, Rabbi David Tevlashif, had the same complaint. Brings to mind the episode we recorded um, the other week, that the only, thing to, the only way to keep Jewish life really alive in Germany was to bring in the shas. Right. that's the only thing that really... Yep. Yeah, post-war. Yeah. And because the rabbis were becoming less relevant, the power of the rabbis became restricted. There were taconis, uh, bylaws of the great synagogue from almost uh, 70 years, 1720 to 1790, which imposed severe restrictions on the rabbi of the congregation. He couldn't place anyone in cherem, excommunicate anybody. He couldn't officiate at a marriage or divorce or intervene in any private quarrel without the sanction of the paranasim. 
And in 1826, uh, the Takonis required the rabbi to obtain prior consent from the Parnassim if he wanted to deliver a sermon on Shabbos afternoon, which many would like to go back to. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, having spoken about sort of the general demeanor and uh, religious levels of Jews, uh, the Jews made headlines in another way through finance and gen generally negative elements of it. It was well known that any pickpocket or thief could find an easy and ready market offence for his wares in Duke's place. Um, so you have William Jackson, whose volumes uh, provided late 18th century England with an encyclopedia of crime. He wrote, and I quote, the Jews are the most notorious receivers of stolen plate and encouragers of housebreakers in this kingdom. So you have a typical transaction in 1771. Two non-Jews, uh, a guy called Cannon and another guy called John Sidde, committed a burglary. They brought their loot to Moses Levy, a dealer in old clothes. He uh, purchases some of the clothes and 650 ounces of plate, paid over £170 in cash. Remember, this is... 250 years ago he passes this stuff on to joseph jacobs but eventually the entire gang is discovered tried and convicted the two non-jews are executed and the two jews who made a very artful defense um, moses was transported to the colonies for 14 years and joseph was somehow acquitted now, some of the crimes that Jews committed were, of course, a direct consequence of dire poverty. Um, Abraham Abrahams, 36-year-old, married uh, with two children, is sentenced to death in 1794 for stealing 22 yards of linen and pleaded poverty. Solomon Nathan, 16, transported to Australia for life for shoplifting nine handkerchiefs, and he told them that he was poor. Uh, Henry Hart, who was 14, was ordered to be whipped for stealing a sheet, and he told the court that he did it from hunger. Yes, the punishments do seem quite harsh then. Very much, yeah. And don't get reformed for a while. I mean, I'll, I'll give you some other examples. Also, 1771, there's an 11-year-old um, Lazarus Solomons. He stood trial for pickpocketing. He's found guilty, and he's transported to the American colonies for seven years. Philip Marks, 14, he was in prison several times. He was flogged for stealing picking pockets even stronger than that this is 1814 it's really the 19th century henry wolf who's 12 years old is sentenced to death for stealing a threepence knife moses solomons who's nine is sentenced to death although recommended for mercy for breaking into a house and stealing a pair of shoes wow these are minors yeah so crime was very harshly punished back then did this all create an image of the Jews? Image of all the Jews, no, but definitely of the poor Jews. Just um, desperation and... No, I'd say very differently to that. You have the Times, I think it's around 1795, warns its readers that Jewish fruitmen 
should be guard you should guard yourself when you go there because they pass uh, bad coins and a, a guidebook in london gave that same sort of caveat probably 20 years later because the ploy that was used by these fruit vendors was to offer their oranges and lemons at such a low price that they would entice buyers to buy several pieces of fruit and therefore they would have to pay with them with a silver coin. When they paid the person, so to speak, behind the counter, the vendor would examine the coin carefully, rubbing it with both their thumbs to test its authenticity. And as they did so, they would substitute a counterfeit coin for a good one. And so they would return the counterfeit coin to the purchaser, telling him that they needed one which was clearly, you know, uh, authentic. And, you know, if they were fortunate, they'd be able to repeat this process two or three times and take in a number of coins during the course of uh, one transaction. And they were known as the Jew fruits men. Yes. Yes, correct. I'm guessing they weren't involved in any violent crime. Generally not. No, this it was generally financial. I mean, there are a, a few prominent um, exceptions in um, also in 1771 seems to have been a bad year. Um, nine burglars armed with knives and guns broke into a farm in the village of Chelsea, right, which at the time was near London. It was a Saturday evening and they killed one of the men in the house. And then they stole from the house and they sold it to another Jew. And the government offered reward for information. And so did both the Ashkenazi and Svardi Kihilis offered a reward for finding these criminals because it brought shame on the community. And in the end, it was another Jew that turned them in. And at the trial, so Levi Weil, Usher Weil, um, Martus Hartog and Chaim Lazarus were all sentenced to death. And one of the rabbis went to visit them in Newgate Jail and gave them each um, a siddha, but he wouldn't attend to them when they were hanged. And large crowds turned out to Tyburn to witness the hanging of these people because it had been so public and so spoken about. And unfortunately, it was very much mentioned that they were Jews. So that's one instance of violent crime. And then there were four members of a Jewish gang of thieves who were hanged at Tyburn in earlier in 1744. Um, once again, because of another Jew who turned King's evidence, uh, Joseph Isaacs, and the four accused, they sort of maintained their Jewish religious principles to the end. Um, here they had been guilty of theft, not of murder. So the, the Kehillis did not uh, excommunicate them or uh, go out of their way to disassociate. And at the place of execution, the four Jews sang Hebrew prayers, and they were actually buried in the Jewish cemetery in Mile End, which still stands to, to this day. Uh, but generally, life was fine, I guess you could say, in the 1700s, which has all been an introduction, um, because I would now like to turn almost everything I've said in the last, uh, whatever, 25 minutes on its head. Because there was an extraordinary bill in Parliament called the Jew Bill, which seemed innocent enough in the middle of the 1700s, but it exploded, not, well, not only, but not in Parliament, really, but across the entire country. 
Everybody talked about it. And it seemingly highlighted the concerns that the average citizen in England had about the Jews. And it stands in stark contrast to everything I've just told you. So we need to understand what it was, how, and if it was so incendiary, why has no one heard of this bill? And it's, I guess, perfectly timed for, you know, Kanye West and Candice Owens, etc., because they made accusations against the Jews that could have come from last week's Twitter or Instagram accounts. And we're way too current for you, Robert. Way too current, yes. <laughs> and unlike nowadays, no one back then had to be politically correct or apologize. You know, basketball players didn't have to say they didn't really mean what they meant. You said what you believed, however extreme, and you never apologized, as we will see next week. But before we go, a prime ministeress. In other words, the wife of a PM, and without her, he would never have gotten to that place in politics. Is that how it's said? Or no, oh, that was a joke. <laughs> never sure. Um, Hannah Primrose, Countess of Rosebury. She was the daughter of Baron Mayor de Rothschild and his wife Juliana uh, Ney Cohen. And she was the granddaughter of Baron Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who brought the Rothschild branch to England. When her father dies in 1874, she becomes the wealthiest woman in England. And she is first introduced to her future husband, the uh, 28-year-old Earl of Rosebury, by Lady Beaconsfield, who is the wife of Benjamin Disraeli. He was Lord Beaconsfield. And they're introduced at the Newmarket Racecourse. And while the Jewish Rothschilds were accepted into society and were close friends with members of the royal family, including the Prince of Wales, um, as elsewhere in Europe, anti-Semitic feelings were prevalent in the upper echelons of society. In fact, Rosebery's own mother was horrified at the thought of a Jewish woman, even a Rothschild in the family. And now Hannah the Rothschild was keen to marry him, but she's also aware of many obstacles because, for instance, it was inconceivable that any children would be brought up as Jews. And another obstacle was the Rothschild family itself. It was their custom to marry within the family, to marry cousins, to keep the fortune within the family. When they spoke of marrying out, they meant outside of the family. <laughs> And of all people, the or papers, the Jewish Chronicle announced its grief at the prospect of her marrying out with a quotation from the Babylonian Talmud, which is taken to mean that if the elders set a bad example, it would lead to others going that way and sort of, you know, notable Jews should set a good example. The Chronicle, imagine that. <laughs> anyway, as it turns out, the engagement was announced in 1878, and he writes to a friend and says his wife is very simple, very unspoiled, very clever, very warm-hearted, and very shy. And they get married, and there's also a Christian ceremony in Piccadilly. But out of disapproval, none of the male members of the Rothschild family attended the ceremony, although it was by then the third Rothschild who had married out in that century. The Prince of Wales was at the ceremony, as was Disraeli, who gave the bride away. Um, and she very much assists and supports her husband on his path 
to uh, political fame, but she died suddenly in 1890 at the age of 39. They already had four children by then. And therefore, he achieves his political destiny, which she had planned for him on his own. But he's prime minister only for one year in 1894. Um And like many of her Rothschild relatives, she was deeply involved with the welfare of young working class women who were Jewish, even though she'd married out, uh, especially in the poorer areas of London, like Whitechapel. And she founded the Club for Jewish Working Girls and donated to many Jewish causes, although Interestingly, within a week of her death, her husband began to cancel a number of these, which sort of prompted charges of, uh, you know, not quite anti-Semitism, but uh, something uh, deeper than was apparent. Her funeral in 1890 was at the Wilsdon Jewish Cemetery. Um, And since at the time it would only be attended by male mourners, it included most members of Gladstone's cabinet at the time. Wow. Brilliant. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. Yet another podcast, which I feel I should have known a lot of the stuff that you said and yet didn't. (laughs) Hoping our listeners felt the same. Please do send any suggestions, reviews, feedback, comments to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Please do rate the podcast well. That makes it easier for others to find. And we'll see you next week. Robert Hirsch, do you know what we're doing next week? We're doing the Drew Bill. Looking forward. Thank you. Thank you.